Okay, if you would, I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You might have it memorized. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Father, oh, it's so good to address you, our Creator, as Father, because through your eternal Son become man, suffering and dying and rising victorious over death, you have adopted us who believe as your children. May that be true for every soul in here. And therefore, Father, to deal with such what I find to be important yet lofty thoughts this morning, help me. Make it simple to the glory of your name. Amen. Let me start off and ask you, how do you deal with life? I mean, particularly you who are Christians. How do you grapple with pain, heartaches, setbacks, discouragements? Do you go to God? And if you do, here's the key question this morning. Do you know His heart toward you? Do you know His will? for you? Do, you? do you find rest? you find peace? Do you find hope? And do you find strength in your communion with God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Let me rephrase it. Do you believe these words from Romans chapter 8? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Christ graciously give to us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And therefore, nothing will be able to separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe those words? Now, the reason that every believer can take those words from Romans 8 to the bank is because your Savior purchased you for His glory. And that's your hope. And because His love for you is rooted and it springs from His love of His eternal glory going outward in redemption, 
Therefore, you can be absolutely assured that God's bumper sticker on His car does not say, I'd rather be fishing. But it says, I'd rather be serving my children. It says, my joy is the joy of all who are in my Son, Jesus Christ. This is part four of the series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. Now, just a summary of where we've been over the last two weeks. We have seen that God, from Genesis 1-1 to chapter 2, verse 3, creates everything for the extension of His glory through humanity made in His image. And we asked the question, what is God's glory last week? And we saw that from all eternity, God has been infinitely happy and contented, filled in the fellowship of the Holy Trinity. The Father has been delighting in the divine perfections as a subject to His object. As the Father delighting in all the divine perfections in the face of His Son. And the Son delighting in being absolutely filled with unbounded joy in the Father. And that community of adoration and worship and love is so infinitely complete. It is standing forth as the third person of the Holy Trinity who proceeds from the dynamic of the Father and the Son. And thus, God is complete, full, eternally contented, Absolutely so in Himself, the one true God. Therefore, He has no deficiencies. God is not and He can never be constrained from anything outside of Himself that would somehow make a move upon Him. And God is the opponent, chess player, would therefore have to react to the move of the other player. Because He is absolutely free. He is absolutely sovereign. There is nothing outside of himself that would cause him to react in a way he had not always eternally willed and purposed as the essence of true happiness in his own internal and eternal glory. So just think for a moment. If God were unhappy, what I mean by that is just a smidgen less than perfectly happy. Maybe he had a, an, speaking human language, that's all we have here, an ounce of boredom in himself. Mm. Then he has some deficiency. He may have a, just a little tinge of loneliness. If that were true, then he may be constrained or forced from outside of himself to act in order to fill up that deficiency, in order to finally be happy or fulfilled. And that would be a horrific thought. So what I want you to do now, I do want you to put a thinking cap on. I'm going to use two terms. 
And they are the terms, and they are, they are different from each other, and I want you to consider them and to think about them in your own very real, everyday lives. You do these two things to finite extent. And one is, is it's the difference between a necessary act versus a free act that you do. For instance, I have, on a number of occasions, sadly, but I remember one particular, Dr. Turner, my dentist years ago, calling him up and essentially begging him to see me immediately so that I can go sit in his chair and he can stick needles into my gums and grind my tooth down to the nerve and take those little files and go all the way up through those nerves and clean them out and fill them up and pack them and send me away with a prescription. That was not a free act. It was a necessary act. Necessary acts are things we do, we will, we choose to do. Please see me and do this as a means to the end or the goal of getting rid of the horrific toothache with a root canal. We see this also on some cars with a bumper sticker that says, I O, I O, so off to work I go, ho, ho, ho. What's that mean? It means, for those, I am not going to work for the sheer pleasure of the job that I will be doing. I'm going to work for another goal that work is the means to. To not live on the street. To pay my mortgage. To pay my rent. To buy food. Send my kids to school. I owe bills. Therefore, off to work I go. Those are necessary acts. Free acts are that other bumper sticker. I'd rather be, well, not me, but some, fishing. I'd rather be golfing. Or I'd rather be going to that concert. I'm going and choosing and willing because of the sheer pleasure of that thing. That's a free act. Okay, now, last week on the Holy Trinity, here's another way to say what I was trying to do, is to say God's internal dynamic as Father and Son and the Holy Spirit proceeding is God's necessary act. It is the essence of His being that is necessary Constantly, it is who He is. Remember I asked the question, what is it about God that must be true for Him to be what is obviously true, if you think about it, eternally happy? He must, he must view and see and will and delight in that which is of infinite value and delight, which happens to be Himself. And thus His goal of infinite contentment and happiness. His necessary act is eternally met without beginning in Himself. That's really good news. Because that means if God then chooses to create everything else that is not God, in His relationship to all that, He is absolutely free. He's free in that He has no dependence and never will on anything or anyone outside of Himself. In other words, because God is eternally content, complete, perfectly happy, overflowing with satisfaction in the fellowship of the Holy Trinity. 
Therefore, everything he does going outside of himself is absolutely uncoerced. He's utterly free. All his acts are. I'd rather be glorifying my name by making those who are mine forever happy with my internal happiness. In other words, in God's relationship to the creation and to every creature, He never acts based upon a toothache He has. I guess I've got to go do this now. This freedom is God's sovereignty. He is free to act on his desires without being stopped or hindered or diverted by anything that is outside of himself. Paul writes it this way in Ephesians 1.5. God acts according to the good pleasure of what? The best move he can make against creation's move on a chessboard? No. According to the good pleasure of his will. Psalm 135.6 says it this way, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And this means that everything God does, ultimately, He delights to do. And it means that he is sovereign, and therefore he cannot be kept from doing whatever he delights to do. God speaks through Isaiah the prophet this way in Isaiah 46, 9-11. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. That is me who is the one who is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Whether it is calling a bird of prey from the east or a human being of my counsel from a far-off country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. So God is free and He is sovereign. He's free, meaning He is eternally self-fulfilled and satisfied. He has absolutely no lack that would ever make Him dependent on anyone or anything that is not God. And He is sovereign, meaning He acts on His desires without being stopped or hindered by anything outside of himself. Okay. That's essentially a wrap-up of the last two weeks. So therefore, the question, the big question, if that's true, then why did he create? I mean, if God is eternally self-satisfied, contented, fulfilled, 
with no needs in the Holy Trinity, then why wasn't he perfectly content without creating? Why did he fling everything, including you, into existence? And I am assuming there's a why. I'm assuming you've got to have a purpose. There must be a reason. Gotta have a goal. Because to think that God flung all of this misery and murder and suffering and cancer and heartache into existence on a whimsy did anything move you, God, to do that? Was there a cause of creation within you? No, nothing. That is a horrific thought. You did all this purposelessly? All the pain? All those who in human history up to this moment and those who will be slowly tortured to death by the hands of other men, the cancers, children being run over by cars, and there's no purpose. Yes, but sin... Wait a minute. Okay, yes, yes it is result of sin. But God, you're omniscient. Before you created, if we can speak in such a way, you are all-knowing. Isaiah makes it clear. You declared the, the, the end from the beginning. You knew exactly what not might or contingently could happen. You knew what absolutely would. And thus you decided to create anyway for no purpose. That would be horrible, wouldn't it? Okay. So, why? Here it is. Summary of the last two weeks, which are already given. And then we read in Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God did create. The heavens and the earth, and He made man in His own image. Male and female, He made them in His own image. Why? Well, we know what the answer isn't. And I will submit what the answer is. And the Bible backs it up everywhere. God did not create in order to get something that He did not already have. He did not have some deficiency and creation will fill that and give to me that which I do not have or is. He did not create. Again, in order to get something, He doesn't have or is. But He created in order to overflow with that which He eternally has or is. His glory. His eternal happiness in God going outward in creation Mankind made in His image in order to reflect His very internal happiness in a finite way for His glory. He created in order not to get what He doesn't have, but to extend that which He is. Just for a moment, parenthesis. We haven't gotten to the fall yet in, in this series. We'll come there. But we're here, right? We're all fallen. Here's the implication of that. The very essence 
of a true Christian. The miracle of new birth by the Holy Spirit, who is the happiness, the eternality of God's communion with the Father and Son and the Son and the Father. The very essence of the conversion of a sinner to Christ through new birth is the very delight that God has in God personified in the Holy Spirit coming into that dead, god belittling soul. And now they taste and see that the Lord is good. That's new birth. That's saving faith. That's why Paul could say, when that happens, we were dead. But He has made us alive together with Christ. Now, let me try to re-say this. It's a redundant morning. But say it in a little bit different way than the way I've already said it. We talk about love. L-O-V-E in English. But we use it in strange ways. I love this burrito. We are loving the poor and the starving by giving of our abundance and feeding them. Same word. Is it the same meaning? I love the burrito because I want to devour it. The burrito gives to me. That's how I love it. If you love the, the poor and the hungry that way, that's unloving in that sense. To love them is what you give to them. Very different meanings. A professor of mine, Daniel Fuller, coined the term need love to distinguish it from benevolent love overflowing and meeting the needs of others. Need love is when we love something because we need it, like uh, oxygen. If you don't have enough, you start to yearn for it. Maybe you got a tank, you may have some more. I love oxygen. I love water. It is loving an, an object that is there for you, for you get your need met by it. The alcoholic loves alcohol. So much so that they're willing to risk years in a penitentiary or a drug addict. When they can't get what they love, they may burglarize a house, maybe get caught, but it's worth it because they are so in love desperately to get what they think they need. So need love is when you love. Water, if you haven't had any in four days. Or food. Or air. Or Psalm 42. Is the deer pants for the water brook. So, David says, my soul pants for you. That's need love. Benevolent love is not using the water or the air as a means to the end of thirst quenched. I can continue living. I'm breathing air. No, no, no. That's need love. Benevolent love is loving others as an end. Not as the means to your end. To get your need met. But it is, I have overflow. You have need, and you meet it. You meet their need love. Make some sense so far? Okay. Therefore, 
God loves himself. This is who God is. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Refer you back. It's on the website. Go listen to it. The Holy Trinity. That is God loving himself eternally with need love. He loves the Son and all his divine perfections and the Son loving the Father. That is the eternal happiness and satisfaction of God, utterly contented. And thus all of his need love is met internally before we turn to Genesis 1-1. God created the heavens and the earth. So notice the crucial difference between our love for God and God's love for us. We are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not with benevolent love. Benevolent love meets the need of somebody. Tell me what need God has that you won't meet. No, we are to love Him with need love. Is he better than the psalmist? Is it that way? Life! Oxygen! Yes, he's your eternal oxygen. You want true satisfaction? Jesus says, come unto me. Burden, you're heavy laden. You, you, <laughs> here's a necessary act. Come to me. Need love me. I'll give you rest for your soul. So you go in order to get what you need. We love God with need love. God loves us with benevolent love. It is the overflow of his full contentment to therefore overflow and share an abundance of what he has with us. God towards God is God's need love. God's love toward us is benevolent love. We love God with need love. We are to love one another with benevolent love. Okay. So back to this morning's question, why did God create? Creation itself is not the source of God's happiness. God is the source of God's happiness. What motivates God to create and to do everything that He does is not the need, need love, to get what He doesn't have, but it is the overflow of what he already has. Indeed, what he already is. And thus, benevolent love is the motive of creation. And if you say, but Joe, I thought God's glory was. It is. And these two are inseparable. And this is the great news of the Gospel. God created us to love us as an end. Got to get that. Because God is infinitely and eternally happy in God. The best thing He could ever benevolently do for another is to bring them into what is infinitely, gloriously beautiful, holy, happy-making. 
which happens to be himself. And so whether you say he created benevolently for you, which means to bring you into his glory, which means to extend his glory through you, they are essentially one and the same. And it's really good news. Because if the creator of the universe in this tell of this trail of tears that we all live, not just that American historical act, if you can be assured when you think deeply about it, that when God created and sends Christ and you should worship me and all that and we're all dying and there's a resurrection and He's inviting you to a banquet table. I want, you can be assured there are no strings attached because He has no need. You're not going to get there and find out, no, 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 don't sit in this chair. Go into the kitchen because we're going to put you in the oven. And you're going to be the turkey on the table because God is needy. He's not. He extends and expands the joy He already is in creating and redeeming. He needs nothing nothing from you. You need everything from Him. Paul said it this way according to Luke. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Because he himself gives to all mankind life breath, and everything. And so because God does everything for the sake of the extension of His glory, He is always and forever, in other words, getting His need, love met in Himself, not outside of Himself. Therefore, He is absolutely free to be there for us for our good. And so I'm going to be closing. It's going to seven minutes because I'm going to read Bible. And read slowly a number of texts. And I hope that they become to you more and more precious. And that it will make sense to you. Yes. The foundation of the hope of glory. Of your future glorification. When Jesus comes back in order to be glorified in His saints. All of it rests on God always doing everything for His glory. So not just that you hear these texts, but that you will feel God's real love in them. In 1 Samuel, Chapter 12, verse 22, 
we read, For the Lord will not abandon His people. Now, sometimes we think these next words are, I used to do that for 12 years as a Christian. I just thought that's Christianese or something. It's, what does that mean? Oh, it's chock full with meaning. Why will you not abandon your people? This is why. On account of His great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. Isaiah 48, 9-11. For the sake of My name, that's why. His glory and His name are tied together. For the sake of My name, I delay My wrath. Whoo! See, God delayed His wrath from Israel. It's a good thing. Why? Rooted in for the sake of His name, I delay My wrath. And for My praise... I restrain my wrath from you in order not to cut you off for my own sake, says God. For my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned? In my glory I will not give to another. Paul writes in Romans 9.17, for this very purpose, God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up. Why? In order to demonstrate my power. God wanted ten plagues. Thus Pharaoh was hardened. I did it God says, because I wanted to demonstrate my power because of you, and so that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. 1 Peter 2.9 Peter says to all Christians everywhere in this general letter, you are a chosen race. You are a people for God's own possession. That's good, right? Why? He tells us why. In order that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. God gets the glory. And you get the experience now and forever in the resurrection of joy of how great He is. Daniel in his prayer in Daniel 9.19 prays, O Lord, hear O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for Your own sake. O my God, do not delay. Because Your city and Your people, they're called by Your name. Do you pray that way? you pray over your own soul? and sinful inclinations that way. Deliver me for the glory of Christ. Psalm 25.11 For Your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, because it's great. Forgive me for Your name's sake. Psalm 79.9 Help us, O God of our salvation. Why? Look at how they pray. Why? For the glory of Your name. And deliver us. 
and forgive our sins for your name's sake. And Jesus says in John 12, 27 to 28, referring to the torture, the death, and the abandonment that he will experience. Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And then he looks up and addresses the Father. This is what the cross is about. Father, glorify Your name. Romans 1.5 They're not throwing away lines to these guys. Through Jesus we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. What is it? He just stopped. Because he can't. To bring about obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Acts 9.16 Concerning Paul, the Lord says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Acts 15, 14. And Simon, Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. in probably the most known Scripture verse in all the Bible. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Where's your hope, David? Because God does it for His name's sake. And one more, because this last one, honest to God, for 12 years as a Christian, I would be conscious of this verse. And I was conscious that it seemed to be nonsense. I just seemed like words without real meaning. 1 John 2, 7. I'm just 2.12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. I just didn't get it. How is it for your sake? It's for my sake. I need my sins forgiven. I want them. And that's a good thing to feel. And I do. But why did he say, for his name's sake? Because Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. And he did. And that's our hope. And so, God's bumper sticker says about every believer, I'd rather be extending my glory 
by serving and working for the good and the eternal happiness of everyone who is in my glory. My son, Jesus Christ. What a gospel. So believer, no matter what you're going through this day, rest assured that your Father, the eternal God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit's energy is working all things for your good. For everyone who is called according to His purpose of glorifying His name forever in the saints. His purpose is to glorify Himself by making you, oh, not down here, but there. Related to what happens down here, making you eternally happy forever for His name's sake. Let's pray. Oh, Father, You are good. May we, young and older, may we grow to really believe this gospel, this astoundingly great news. Oh, Father, may we understand more and more that the greatest news there is is that you are God and you do all things for your glory. And that's why you sent your Son that whosoever would believe in Him won't perish, but they will have your life, your eternal life in them forever. May we trust you this week through the nitty-gritty, our battle against sin, our relationships, our obedience to you, trusting you are out for our good infinitely more than we are capable of understanding. Do this in us, Father, to the glory of Your name.